I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to kick this off? Absolutely. This is, uh, we have Forrest coming back. Uh, she's our, uh, she was an anthropologist that was on just a couple of episodes back. And Forrest, actually, we talked the other day, not only do you have some new activity, so you're, a, you're in a real hot spot, but you had some activity that, you were a little reluctant to tell us about until you talked to your friend Chuck. And he said, yeah, that, that'd be fine to go ahead and share it with us. Um, and so this is really one of the more interesting aspects of the creatures. And this is, uh, it kind of parallels some other stories that we've heard from TW. But before we go any further, I want to say, folks, thanks for uh, uh, clicking the like and subscribe it helps and it feeds the algorithm. And if you want to support us, you can do so. The link is in the description. All right. So for us, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of hand the mic to you. You had some activity just a few days ago, and I want to get into that. But before we do, um, tell us what happened with about four years ago? Well, as you and I discussed, I was kind of hesitant to say anything because I'd only said, uh, I had discussed this episode with uh, four or five people that were real close friends. And um, after I talked to Chuck, I thought, well, I I was just going to tell you what had happened. And um, it was... A, you know, I work overnight, and um, so it was on a Wednesday going into a Thursday morning, a Wednesday night, excuse me, going into a Thursday morning, and I had uh, worked all night Tuesday into Wednesday morning, and I had gotten up, and I had to do a bunch of stuff, and uh, got feed and such as that, so I was pretty much gone all day long and hadn't gone to bed. And um, I was pretty exhausted. And um, in fact, I didn't even, um, in my cabin there um, that I was using after my house had burned down, I didn't even bother opening up the the day bed. I just went to sleep right there on the the couch. And um, so it was about 2.30 in the morning. I... And I think I used the term with you was that I came to because that's really what I felt like had happened. Like I had come to, like I was out. Um, 
I was extremely exhausted and I did have a real bad habit of, um, and this is something that I have forgot to say to you that I had a real bad habit of going to sleep with my earbuds on and, and you listen to a couple of characters that uh, run a show called Creek Devil. <laughs> and um, that'll do I it. Would, <laughs> that'll do it, yeah. And um, I would go to sleep with those earbuds in, listen to programs and stuff. And um, uh, I had them in that night. And <clears throat> so I wake up and I felt something running down my face and I thought, what in the world, you know, and I was really, really droggy and I sat up and I, of course I, I'm wiping my face and the ambient light from my pole light outside came through one of the windows and I could see, you know, dark stuff on my, my hands. And I thought, what in the world? You know, I just couldn't imagine what, you know, what was on me. And about that time, off my pillow, down to my side, rolls this can. I mean, a full can. And I picked it up, and I could see it was a can of beans. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I remember sitting it on the coffee table in front of me. <clears throat> and I, I didn't look at it at that time. Um, but the one thing that I had noticed in there was that... Um, the whole cabin smelt, it smelt very strong of urine and a wet dog. And, you know, I just couldn't, it, it, nothing really clicked at that point in time, what was going on until I looked up, I had I reached over, turned the light on, I looked up and all my cats were on the second story, all sitting there looking at me. And I thought, well, that's kind of peculiar. And then I noticed that my door to the cabin was wide open. And I knew that I had locked that door when I went to bed. Um, at that point in time, I just had a standard lock on it. It now has a deadbolt on it. And when I walked over and I looked at my face, uh, I saw this gash down the, my, 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 my face. And it turned out, the next day, I had a knot on my forehead, a gash, and then a partial black eye. And, um, of course, I didn't work till Friday. And then I went to work, and I was trying to, all these people were asking me, you know, what happened? And, you know, I'll be honest with you now, I don't even remember what excuse I made. The only person that I did tell the true story to was Sherry. And you've heard me uh, bring up her name before. And, um, when I had gotten up and I looked at my face, it just, it was like with the smell and everything in there, it was like, it all of a sudden it hit me what had happened. And I, I immediately went over there, locked the door and I actually started piling stuff up in front of the door as if that would have really done that much good. I guess if they wanted back in, it would have come back in. But, um, this was about a month, maybe a month and a half after I'd had the episode with the air conditioner. And, um, you know, you could ask me, uh, I think if I thought it was the same one. And, and I told you then that, uh, I don't think it wasn't that one that 
that uh, that creature was way too big to have even gotten in that door. Um, it had to have been a small one. And, you know, we had had um, footprints up uh, on that hill, hillside there of a, a larger one and smaller footprints. So I think a juvenile came in there that night, and I don't know whether it took a can and threw it at me or dropped the thing on me or what. Uh, but So you have can, no recollection I have absolutely no recollection at all. And when uh, the next morning when I looked at that can, that's when I realized where the gash, because there was blood on the can. And I was like, oh, this is what happened. Because I didn't even realize that uh, that night, Wednesday night, uh, Thursday morning, actually going into Thursday morning, because it would have been Thursday morning, excuse me, 2.30, that it was the the can that had hit me it wasn't until the next morning that i looked at that and i saw the the blood trickling down the the, of course it was dried at that point in time uh that had trickled down the side of that can and i was like aha (laughs) that's what happened and and just to be clear this this can was you said it was on a table at your bedside or it was in the room or where was the can? Well, it was, you know, my, the cabin is a, a, a it was a, a 14 by 20, uh, just one large room. And I had a cabinet there and the cabinet was open. So evidently it had picked up the, the can of beans out of the cabinet and just, I guess, chunked it at me. Um, for what reason? I don't know. Cause I was sleeping. I was obviously no threat to the animal. So uh, why it did it, I don't know. But I honestly think that it knocked it it it, it knocked me out. And uh, but the the can had when I sat up off the couch, the can actually was on my pillow, and it, it rolled down my pillow and hit me on the side. And all I did was pick the can up and set it on the the coffee table in front of my couch. And I, you know, it didn't even like I said, didn't register on me at the time that the uh, my. Uh, source of my problem was actually the can, you know, until the next day when I saw the blood on the can. And I was like, oh, this is what hit me in the head. And and the cabinet is like just a like a pantry or something that you. Yeah, it was just a pantry. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, it was just a all pantry. Right. But, you know, yeah. Wow. And you wake yeah. up and, and now you're smelling urine. You're smelling a dog, like a wet dog. You said it was a very musky dog. It was dog. a combination of real strong urine, wet dog smell. And, and uh, that's what the cats scared. don't. Okay. And it, it's not the cats that are doing this. Oh, and, no, and, no. Uh-uh. And they're freaked out. Oh, yeah. They were all upstairs looking at me like, uh, we're not coming down. Uh-uh. <laughs> <clears throat> wow. And so there's no indicate. You don't, you don't know how long you were. Knocked out. For I, I have no idea for sure when it happened. No, no, what time or anything. And what I told you that was so frightening to me was that the fact that it was had gotten in there, and I had no knowledge that it was even in there. And um, now, you know, if 
working all night long and then going up, you know, used to when I was 25, I could stay up 24 hours. It wouldn't bother me in the least. I can't do that anymore. I get wore out. And uh, working all night long and then coming back and then running errands and getting horse feed and, and uh, unloading that and doing, doing all that stuff, physical labor. And then, like I said, I did have a bad habit of putting my earbuds uh, in at night and uh, I quit doing that after that. Well, here's, so. here's the thing. This is, you know, when you're in your bed, this is your... This is your security, your sanctuary. We need to know that we are safe because we're vulnerable when we're asleep. And this thing came in, violated all that, and obviously knocked you unconscious. What we don't know what is it? Was it trying to kill you? What was it just? What was it doing? I mean, this is uh, very disturbing. Let me. Yeah, it is disturbing. Let me and, ask you a question. And, uh, as as a okay. as a, a degreed anthropologist, what's your outlook on this situation? <laughs> what is my outlook? Yeah. Um, I well, mean, I mean, aside you know, from the you know the obvious. Um, I think that Bigfoot has a lot of habits. Uh, whether they be inherent or acquired, uh, that are very much like chimpanzees. Um, chimpanzees are very violent by nature. Um, and in the wild, I, I mean, there's some that are um, that tend to be loving when they're uh, cared for by people. But the males have a tendency, even when they're cared by people, to uh, act out aggressively. And... I have no earthly idea why that the thing would have even come in. I mean, maybe prompted by curiosity, uh, but, you know, it is a, aggression is a very common um, ape thing. Uh, even, you know, very, very common in, in chimpanzees and uh, fairly common in macaques. And, um, but it's usually, you know, it's subordinates in a group and uh, rarely do they, well, I should say, shouldn't say rarely because evidently they have episodes here of late. Uh, with uh, chimpanzees actually attacking uh, people and and other groups outside their own territories, but uh, I don't know whether I, I I really don't understand it. I don't think that I presented a threat to them, or whether it was just a juvenile uh, acting out. I don't know because I, I I can tell you right now that that. That one that I saw that night had to have been a male, as big as it was, uh, with their air conditioner. And that creature could not have gotten in my door. It, there's no way. I mean, it would have had to uh, have uh, finagled its way in there. It, it couldn't have got through that door easily. And that, that was the other thing that I didn't mention, uh, Tom, was, in, uh, was that that door 
the frame on the door, what had happened was it looked like it had took it and it looked, literally grabbed the knob and then pushed it sideways and then pushed it in. And that's how it popped the lock. That's, that's kind of what I was uh, speculating was that it actually through just brute strength was able yeah. to just sort of bend it in and, and, you know, like you said, go, uh, now does that cabin still there or do you still have it or? Oh yeah, I still have a cabin and I, I obviously don't, don't live in there anymore but uh we have uh, reinforced the frame and around the door and then put a deadbolt in it and um i just you know <laughs> have you have you ever had a situation ha- have have they ever like when either the place you're in now or the cabin do you think they've ever gone up and tried the door and maybe the cats were looking at it or have you ever heard anybody Jiggling the doors, or you know, I'm just trying to figure out if maybe this is sort you mean, of happened. You mean before. at the cabin, whether it had happened before there at the yes, cabin, yes. or yeah? You know what? I honestly, I honestly don't know. Uh, I, I will just plead ignorance. But see, I work so much at night, and I'm only off two days during the week, so they could have been doing a lot of things at night, and I wasn't aware of it. Now, you know. Uh, I told you what happened here when I had to call the sheriff out here about two weeks ago. Yeah, we want to. I want to hear about that. But not just the cabin. I, you know, I did say the cabin, but also the. Um, I think you're in a uh, uh, mobile home or or a uh, constructed a home. home. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have you heard anything strange there where, where they may have jiggled the door, tried to get in? Well. Uh, the two weeks ago when I called the sheriff, um, my, uh, dog that stays outside, he was just barking, barking, barking. And, and, um, I'm kind of limited on my movement right now because you gentlemen know I have spinal surgery and, and thank you for your, your, uh, uh, texts and concern. I appreciate that. And, um, I had kind of had to shuffle to the back door because he, he just kept, and it was the way he was barking was what alerted me was it was that growl, uh, growl, growly type of bark. And uh, I opened the back door and looked out at him, and he's just directly across from the back door in his kennel. And he, but he was looking down towards the barn. And um, I thought, okay, he's seeing something that I can't see, and I'm not going to. There was no way with the condition that I was in walking that I was going to um, walk down to the end of the trailer to look around to see what was down there. So I instead went to the front door and looked out, and that's when I saw two figures down there by the barn. And um, now I couldn't tell you, to be honest with you, uh, and I would be lying to say that I could, whether they were human or they weren't human, because I just saw them go down around the barn. But the one thing that I thought was rather peculiar is I have a motion light on that end of the barn. The motion light didn't come on. And I thought... You and I talked about that. mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious, and what I'm going to tell the audience is, is that these things will test a motion light, and they will know. They're smart enough to know where it turns on or where it turns off. And I had asked if you had either you or Sherry or Jessica had a chance to go out 
take a look and see if there's some sticks or some little rocks or any kind of markers out there that would indicate that'd be right there at the threshold of where the motion sensor kicks in. Well, I didn't, and of course I hadn't been walking. So, and, and, and of course that, uh, I had told you, uh, when I told you about that episode, I did not, um, that didn't even, that thought never occurred to me. And we've been down there hauling feed uh, with trucks coming in and out since then. So if there were markers down there, we probably wouldn't notice them now because they've probably been moved and, um, you know, run over. But I'm going to keep that in mind. And I actually uh, uh, need to I need to get with Sherry and with uh, Jessica and let them know that when they're down there, because what happened was, is I call the sheriff and ask him if he would come out there and um, we have a very, very nice young man that's a former military that uh, has had to come out here a couple of times. And I almost, I almost said something to him. I just kept telling him, I said, be extremely careful down there. Please be extremely careful. And he has one, he had one of these really bright spotlights that just lit up everything like daylight down there, which I was thankful that he did. And but I almost said something to him and I thought, you know, I'm going to have to think this one through because I didn't want him thinking that I was crazy, a crazy old lady. <laughs> you know? And, um, and you know, a lot of people think that, so, you know, it, it, the truth is the truth, but sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And, but he was very kind. He walked all around. And he called me up and he said, Miss Kay, he said, everything is okay down here. But he says, your horses are really, really disturbed about something. And that's when, you know, if it was, pe that's what kind of alerted me. Because if it was people, they're not going to be acting crazy. Oh, that but makes sense, something that? else, yeah, that's, that's different. And, um. He said, if you have any more problems, you just call me. Well, he left, and I, I felt better. I went to sleep, and then at 3.58, all of a sudden, I had had to move Lagatha. That's my uh, dog. And I had to move her into the living room because, um, you know, when I had gotten home from surgery, Jessica had actually spent the night so she'd moved a cot into my bedroom and so we had to move Lagatha's kennel into the living room and so all of a sudden Lagatha is going crazy in the living room and I don't know whether something came up and tried the door but, I mean, she was growling and barking, and, and I mean, uh, she was going crazy. And or whether she saw something go past the window, I don't know. Um, but you know what? I didn't go outside to find out. Right. And um, so my, my part of my problem right now is I'm limited on it. I would have gone outside had I been in a normal situation. I would have just gone outside the next morning and looked around to see if I could see tracks or anything like that. But um, uh, I couldn't do that. That's that's 
I've been counting. In fact, I did the most walking I've ever done in the last two weeks uh, today. So um, I just, you know, but I'm getting better. <laughs> well, that was part of the reason we wanted you to go out and take a look for markers out there. Just, you know, just our concern that, you know, just concerned for your safety and because you got this activity going on. Um, and I, and I, I don't know what to advise on on the sheriff. I mean, you can, you know, you could just keep doing what you're doing and, you know, not say anything. Or you could just say, hey, listen, I got to tell you something. And I don't really want to tell you this. But I need to tell you this, and you know it's it's up to you how you take it. But uh, this is uh, factual, and maybe even tell them, hey, listen, uh, I'm you know I've, I have a graduate degree in in uh, anthropology. I, I'm you know I'm not a crazy lady, and I know what I'm talking about. So, um, but that's you know that's up to you how, how you want to approach that. Um. Okay, so the horses are, they're agitated. The dog is provoked. It's agitated. But you said something, another thing happened with the barn doors. You you secured yeah. the barn doors <laughs> with baling wire. Well, we, not baling wire, but the baling string. Uh, they don't use much baling wire down here anymore. It's usually uh, just a, uh, a nylon string, which is very, I mean, strong. And um, my neighbor's dogs have a tendency to come in the coming was coming in the barn and eating the cat's food and and then um, uh, it was just eating the cat's food was mainly and then chasing my cats and stuff. So well, we we would close the doors down in the barn just so that they were wide enough uh, for my cats to come in and out the doors. And then one one end of the barn actually has a gate. And we had that tied shut too. <clears throat> we now have chains on both the doors with locks. So I guess we'll see what happens with that. But um, Jessica came in two days ago and she was like, um, I don't believe what, what happened down here, Kay. And I'm like, I, I have no idea what happened. And she said, the barn doors are wide open. The string is just ripped off the door, and the barn door is wide open. There was stuff strong, of course, at at that point in time. The horses had gotten in there, too. But, I mean, uh, from what she was telling me, there was bags of feed all over the place. We'd just gotten 20 bags of uh, pellets. There was oats down there stacked, and all the stuff was just, uh, you know, ripped open and thrown all over the place and she had to completely clean up the barn and uh now i had not really i had not had that problem when i was just getting oats and i had this was the first time that we had decided to go with the pellets and um so i was kind of i'm not gonna i i the thought was running through my mind about you know, these things getting into barns and breaking into people's sweet feed. Now, I don't feed sweet feed, but I do the, the pellets. Uh, you know, Safe Choice makes a pelleted feed, and it, it's sweet to taste. And um, uh, so I was thinking, oh, my gosh, 
you know, and both doors. I mean, <laughs> I've had the horses get into the barn before, but it's usually the babies would squeeze through because the doors weren't tight enough, and then the babies would force their way in there, but not all the big grown horses and everything. We had like two or four horses in the barn, and of course, they were happily eating everything that was loose on the floor. Uh, but uh, something had to provide the opening, and uh, they didn't rip the doors open. So and anyway, we got two doors anyway, would they? No, no, that's just the thing. They wouldn't have thought to get two doors, you know, let's get both doors to the barn open. No, um, no, they wouldn't have done that. And I've never had them ever do anything like that. And um, so we've now got the doors chained and we've got them locked. So I guess we'll wait and see what happens. <laughs> Well, it was interesting because this happened two days ago when mm-hmm. you and I were talking. Yeah, yeah. And you said, I'll get back to you in five minutes. And it was an hour and something later. And yeah. you explained <laughs> what had happened. And I was like, wow. Yeah, um, she called me and she's like, she knew I couldn't come down there. But she was like telling me that she says, she says, I do not know how this happens. She said, they're just torn open. And and then she said, there's feet everywhere. And I. You know, so, I mean, the, the horses would rip open a bag, but they're not going to just drag everything all over the place. Well, and the other thing is, it's not a person, because a person is not going to open up your barn and start going through all the feed. Oh, no, they'll just load them up and take them. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I have mean, you noticed the price of feed lately? <laughs> No, I haven't, but uh, but I do know what the sweet feed is. It actually smells pretty good. So it smells like yeah. you could put a bowl of that with some milk, and you'd have some some yeah, you know. pretty good cereal, huh? <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. But um, so, and and Jessica realized. I mean, there there's two doors open. The feed is all over the place. Uh, does she is she aware of the extra visitors yeah. you have? Yes, and and the other thing I was going to tell you is that um, now she's not ever seen anything, but now Sherry's husband, when he's had to come out here, when I've had a few things, uh, when I knew that I actually had people, people out here, and I've told you about that, Um, and uh, he had, her husband, Sherry's husband had come out here and walked around, and he swears up and down that when he was out there spotlighting that he actually had uh, seen seen one so now is um, that the one he saw that jumped over the fence no that was my that's on my grandson-in-law and um now we've talked go backwards to here a little bit uh we had had um a shooting incident with the neighbor in the back and um so we'd had to call a sheriff out here and i don't even know how we got off on the subject of bigfoot and i actually said well you know we we do have them out here, you know. And the guy was like chuckling. There and is no that was when my actual grandson-in-law was standing right there, and he's and that was the first time he actually openly admitted. He said, uh, "Yeah, we do." He said because I've seen it too. And he said, "You know," the and the sheriff just looked at us both and rolled his eyes, and he said, "Okay, well." He said, "I think y'all are okay for the night." <laughs> You need another <laughs> sheriff, but uh, yeah. Well, uh, and we that's why I say recommend. this young man we've got now—he seems to be more uh, amenable to to actually listening to people. Yeah, 
So just out of curiosity, what was the shooting incident? Was it related to Bigfoot or is it just something totally different? No, I I have a <clears throat> a gentleman that, that's behind me that has a real bad habit of um he targets practices a lot and he um and he almost shot me. I was walking in the back and uh the next thing I knew there were bullets flying around behind me and he had actually erected his targets and they were coming the he was shooting across my property in the back. So we had to um call the sheriff and this wasn't he actually I actually had a horse that I had lost due to the fact that um she had um she'd been shot and the bullet lodged in her jaw and um we nobody realized not even the vet because nobody thought to do an x-ray of her and she got septic and she um she died and when they did the necropsy on her she had a 22 bullet in her jaw oh, wow. yeah oh. i wasn't very happy about that no no that's, so, yeah um so it wasn't but, related to, to Bigfoot. No, but, uh-uh. <clears throat> no, I'd be happy if Bigfoot would just take him away, but you know, <laughs> I couldn't be that lucky. <laughs> right, right. So, all right. So you had the incident where, um, tell us a little bit about the one, not the one who jumped over the fence, but but the the other one. Uh, the air conditioner. No, not the air conditioner. Where you was it? Your son-in-law or. It was my grandson-in-law was the one that saw the one go to the fence. He was going out that early in the morning, uh, about five o'clock, uh, to go to work. And, um, it had, um, at my, my gate, when we had the house fire, the fire department had busted my automatic, I had an automatic gate opener and they busted it. So now we have to manually close the gate and latch it and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, he had gotten out, drove through went back to close the gate and latch it and had just was getting in his truck when this thing jumped over the fence and went across on uh, four feet quadrupedally in front of him and then stood up and then jumped the fence and went off uh, to the west here uh, in the front. Yeah. Well, and now he's the one who told the sheriff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We've seen him. <laughs> She's not crazy. <laughs> Okay, so so this is an ongoing situation, and you know, two days ago was the, the latest latest activity. Um, what I don't know what what are your plans going going forward as far as trying to you know mitigate this a little bit? Well, I'll tell you, Tom. I don't know what what you can do. I mean, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, and I just, I've gotten to where the only thing that I can do is usually during the summer, I don't have, I haven't, I had not been having a lot of activity. It's usually, it usually slacks off come springtime and then it doesn't start up till like fall. I've been kind of watching it and have figured out, you know, the timeline on this thing. And so I'm, you know, all I can do is just kind of hang tight and hope that, you know, they're going to go, go on their merry way to wherever they go and, uh, you know, depart from here. But, um, there's not a whole lot, I mean, I can do, um, 
that I know of. So, I mean, we've, we've got the barn locked up. I'm locking my cats up every night. So it's like, um, I mean, I got well, barn cats. You know, it is interesting that you, I, I was waiting to see what, what you're going to say as far as when the activity really kicks up. And how odd that you say it really, the activity kicks up in this in in the fall in the autumn because that is mm-hmm. historically i think uh here in the pacific northwest and and most of the reports that we hear really kicks into gear in in the late summer and in the autumn so that's that's and apparently that's the case down in texas as well i don't know the reason for that um i think one recommendation we would make is i mean you get to feed you know the barns are locked it's stored in the in the barn and i think um you know maybe putting some bright lights around because they don't like that maybe that would you know encourage them to move on somebody else i actually talked to pec about uh, putting another pole light out there at my barn so they're planning on doing that for me yeah um and I've got I've got lights all around the the mobile home now too. Okay, all right. So maybe that's why you're not seeing a lot. Although you know the dog is did some barking, but that was, the dog was barking at the barn, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, Cagney was looking out towards the the barn, but you know something came up on this porch and, and I think tried that door. I think that's what uh, 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 prompted Lagatha. I don't think she just saw something at the window. I honestly God think somebody tried that door. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't know if y'all heard of cases where they, they know that there's a single person, just one person living in a, a, in a residence and then bothering, uh, bothering them. Actually we do. Yes. We have a situation, a pretty bad situation going on in Missouri right now. That's very similar to that. Is that the woman in a mobile home too? Yes. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, th- I think they're smart enough to know that somebody's somebody's in a vulnerable situation like that. Well, and it seems to be women, and uh, I think that they recognize that they're uh, they're intelligent enough. You know, apes most certainly intelligent enough to to sense uh, the difference in uh, uh, women and men, and uh, they're. It's just like chimpanzees in Africa. They're, uh, they attack women and, and children and are known to kill them and, and, and eat them um, there. And um, so, you know, trust I, me, that thought has crossed my mind I, a couple of times. I wanted to comment. That made me think of something. For the midweek show we did this week, The Beast of Jovidon from the 1760s in southern France. And what struck me was... One of the one of the comments that they had made at the time about that, because in that three year time period, there were nearly 300 people killed. Predominantly, oh, wow. it was uh, children, but it was women and children. And mm-hmm. and of course, you know, there was a lot. They didn't know what it was. There was lots of speculation if it was a wolf, or they were saying hyena and hyena and all sorts of bizarre descriptions. But if it were one of these creatures, it would make more sense. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, they to target women and children. And we talk about this with people all the time. When the creatures come up, they're looking in windows. Who are they looking at? Usually children when they're sleeping. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it's nothing friendly they're doing. No, I don't think so either. And, and um, you know, this this idea that they're the friendly forest creatures, I think, needs to be dispensed with. Yeah, it's it's absolute nonsense. I think they have enough enough intelligence to understand that the encroachment of people are probably uh, upon their their territories and such. But you know, they've they've utilized that too, and uh, learned to uh, accommodate. I think their lifestyles because they're they're they seem to be uh, feeding on livestock, pets, uh, and our garbage and from anything that we've thrown away. I mean, they dump. From what I understand, they do a lot of dumpster diving and um, and such. And I don't keep my trash outside, so that therefore I don't ever have that problem. So that's a good thing. Um, One of the things yeah. I would suggest, and 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 you know this as an anthropologist, you know, territory goes to the the, the guys with the strongest odor. Uh, so if you want to claim your territory, pour bleach around the area. Hmm. Okay. Because we've got them in, in this location in Missouri where they're actually urinating on things and they're claiming the territory and, and the locals are saying it's really strong and that was my recommendation to them was to pour bleach because it's stronger. Yeah, yeah. And it also cuts through the urine smell too. Absolutely. Okay, well I'm going to go buy all the Clorox at <laughs> Walmart tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, listen, Forrest, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it, but, you, you know, you got a little something coming from us, so you'll get that next week. Well, and, I appreciate uh, that, guys. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. And your friend Anita, uh, looking forward to uh, when, when she gets some free time, we'd love to chat with her as well. Yeah, I gave her your phone number, uh, home phone number, by the way, too. So uh, Yes, okay. Yeah, I think you'll, you'll, you'll find her music character. Oh, good, good, good. Awesome. Well, listen, I'm going to let you get back to whatever you're doing. And uh, again, I'll, I thank you for, for your time tonight. Oh, you're very welcome, sir. I always enjoy talking to y'all. And we sure hope you get better soon, too. Oh, I will. I'm, I'm too mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Forrest. Well, thank you very much. All right, yes, Will. Thank you. All right, Tom. Y'all take care. All right. Bye for now. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Well, everyone, we're not as gone as we thought. Tom, do you want to uh, launch into what we're doing here with this piece? Yes, absolutely. I want to say, um, first off, Jessica, thank you for joining us. Um, Jessica is the, she is a friend of Forrest, who uh, we were just talking to. And we were able, we're very fortunate to have Jessica on because she is the eyewitness. I asked for us today if we could speak with you and uh, it all worked out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand you the mic here in just a second, but you were the one who went out. Now I, I spoke with Forrest two or three days ago. She says, I'll get right back to you in five minutes. And it was over an hour before she got in touch with me. And that is because Jessica, you found something in the barn it was in a condition that wasn't the way it should have been tell us a little bit about that what you found out there well for one we actually close and tie up the barn we don't just close it where the horses can just nose open 
So it's actually physically tied up at both ends. So now that was something I, I wanted to, uh, um, I apologize for interrupting. Forrest corrected me. I thought it was uh, that these things, or Forrest thought that it was torn open, but you tie it with baling string? Yes. One end is actually with just baling, the baling string with a gate, and the gate is actually tied to the pole that it's closed gets closed to. The other side is a actually a 550 cord and a shortened tie-down strap. So it's actually got hooks on both ends and we tie it. Gotcha. So it's, okay. it's not something a horse can get into easily, if at all. So it's actually, it's like, even when I'm just walking around the property, I'll use, I'll loop the gate closed and I'll actually hook the other side closed. That way they can't get in to the feed and hay that's stored in the barn. And before I leave every night, I, once I start rolling up the hoses, I actually physically close the barn up before I start rolling the hoses. Okay. And so my understanding is it's tied up and however it was open, it was untied with something that required hands to untie it, correct? Yes. Okay. And what did you find when you got out there? This is the good part. I actually found both sides wide open. And it's like, that's what makes it weird. Cause it's like, if it were, was the horses one side, I can understand, but not both. Let, let me ask you a question. Now you described how you tied everything up. How were the doors opened? It's like one side, the side that actually had the gate, it was actually opened far enough to where it was jammed open. I actually had a pry bar, had to have a large metal bar and pry it open, pry it back to where it, I could close it. Now, did you have these latched or, or tied up when they were closed? It's like, that's what I do every night before I leave is I tie them up. That's what I was getting around to. Were the ties broken? No. They were untied. Oh, interesting. It's like the gate one actually just has a loop that I loop over. And it was, it was, uh, it's like the horses didn't chew it or anything. Because normally the gate is closed like that. They won't even try to get enter in. Even with any, no one around there. Because it's like, okay. It's not open, especially since just a couple of days before a fresh bale, four fresh bales of hay were brought. So it's one of those, they don't come over here to the barn and just try and enter the barn without, it's like, okay, if there's no hay, they'll come over and try to enter. But this wasn't that, there were 
it's like they knew exactly where the hay was, which is quite a distance away from where the barn is. And there was no fresh hay in the barn, so that wouldn't have attracted them. Not with the the fresh stuff. Yeah, just just to be clear, even if they had gone to the barn, there's absolutely no way the horses could have untied these bailing strings, right? No. And if, and if by some weird chance that I didn't tie them like I normally do, they're always latched. It's like the barn, the gate, I always loop over on the other side. I'll latch it closed. That way they don't enter in if I'm doing something else around the property. So, because the latches on one side are actually the the tie the tie down strap hooks so that's not something a horse can just pop open and the fact that the doors were both sets of doors were wide open not just one because normally if one side's open they'll go to that side they won't try to open both of them that's not something a horse will do okay now so both doors are open. So there's one on one end of the barn and one on the other end. Both doors are open. What did you find when you got inside the barn? Well, for one, the oats that were right beside the door were practically untouched. They were off the pallet and that was it. I had six bags of oats for the horses. Three of them still in the barn. Not a hole, not a rip, nothing. Okay, and that's One, unusual because would the would the horses have tried to get to the oats or? Yes, especially since that's the first thing. It's literally, you step in to the barn, right as you enter, there's, a, there's where the feed is. So it's not, oh, let's go 20 feet away where this other feed is. Oh, there's feed right here. There's stuff right here beside me. And I know exactly where it is. And it's not. And it's not in an airtight bag or anything. It's. It's a reusable bag, so it's. It's sealed with just a string across the top. So they can Mm -hmm. smell those oats right there. So what was meth- Yeah, Jessica or excuse me, Jessica, uh, Forrest was telling me that when you got in there, there was uh it's not sweet feed, but it's pellets, which have a little bit of sweet flavor to them. That bag, which is a pretty stout bag, and it has that kind of string that you have to sort of untie and then pull it, it was torn asunder. Is that kind of how you found it? Yes, that was the bags that were most messed up. And it was actually one of them looked like almost like someone took a knife to it. It was ripped right down the side, like someone stabbed a knife and ripped it open, ripped it. And it's like, or someone grabbed the sides and just pulled and ripped across right, right where one of the 
bag seams would be down the side of it. Not like they were trying to, to pull the string and open it, but straight down the down the side. Okay, and this is some that take considerable strength to rip open the bag, is that correct? Yes, because those, it, they're almost like your dog food bags. Those, the dog food and cat food bags, those are not easy to rip open without something starting it. Okay, all right. And so these are torn from the top down. They're just torn open, and, and it was definitely not somebody with a knife cutting open. No. Okay. Because gotcha. it was only a couple that were opened like that. And it's like, that's that's not something a horse can do, period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. And the feed was, what was the condition of the feed and the barn when you got in there? The, the actual bags were in a pile. And they were off the pile and spread out around where the pallet is. There was some that were pulled from the bottom. And it's like the horses, they're not going to go for bottom. They're going to go for white, right, what is right on top. Yeah, right, right. That makes sense. Um, now, they're torn open. And was there some of the sweet pellets scattered on the floor no not really that's what made it even more strange is like it was very neat there was nothing really spilled on the floor like what a horse would do if they're trying to shake it open and tear it with their teeth and she also has actually trash cans metal trash cans that she puts in some of her feed one of the lids was off the trash can. Okay, and and definitely when when you left or when you had secured the place, both lids were on the trash can, right? Yes. Cause those and it's it's the metal metal trash cans. Those those lids are not easy to get off. Yeah, no, they're not. I I I, I remember those as a kid. Um, so what's really interesting about this, what I'm gathering, is that the bags are torn open. It wasn't a big mess. Something opened it up enough just to start getting the food out of the, uh, you know, the pellets or whatever out of the out of the feed bags. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, that's like with the fact that the oats weren't touched and the one bag that was touched that I could tell was dragged outside. And that's, it's like, they're not going to drag it outside for no reason. It's like, they're more likely to, to grab the bag and pull it into their, their pen in the barn than to drag it outside via the door. Okay, so one of the feed bags is actually Outside the barn now? Yes. It's like out of the out of the oats, one was outside. The rest of them, it's like I, I couldn't find one, but one was outside. The other three, not touched at all. 
they were pulled off the pallet. But that's one of those a horse didn't pull the, that off the pallet, not the way not the way they were because they were actually neat beside the pallet. Looked like they were just pulled off, just dragged off on the side. You know, I got a, another question. Um, do you guys keep any mineral or salt blocks in the barn? And if so, were those disturbed in any way? We do not keep any salt blocks actually out loose in the barn, but we do have one outside the barn doors. And I didn't check that, honestly. Okay. So, and you're talking to Forrest. I asked her, and I'm just going to ask you point blank. This isn't indigence going to the barn, opening both barn doors, neatly opening up, tearing open a bag, uh, and helping themselves to horse feed, <laughs> essentially, right? Yeah. There's no way, because it's like, there's actually a compressor that's in there. And it wasn't touched. You mean like an air compressor? Yeah. And oh, not okay. one of the small ones, either. One of the ones that... I think we lost her, Tom. Oh, okay. Um, I, th I think the point that she was going to make with the... With the so you were just telling us about the air compressor, and I think what I was kind of gleaning from that is if this was indigents or transients or something like that who were, you know, breaking into the barn, number one, they're not going to be. Yeah, Ooh, those could be expensive, sure. And it wasn't touched. So that's one of those, something's not adding up. Well, if it was I'm gonna, human. <laughs> right. So I'm going to ask you point blank. We know what what Forrest says it is, and she says you're familiar with the uh, visitors that she has there. What What are your thoughts on that? If you have you eliminated every other possibility but these creatures, it's something because it's like there's too many things that happen around that property. That can't be human. It's like, like an area where her dog was right behind it. There was a figure eight, literally right behind her, where her dog was, and her dog was always barking. Now, he doesn't bark half as much. Yeah, and I think that's the one where she hired somebody to go in and just raise it to the ground. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel? Uh, uh, do you ever have to go out to the barn when it's uh, early evening and, and secure everything and check on the horses? Or how do you feel going out there now that you know uh, what kind of creatures are around there from time to time? She's even told me, do not come out there. It's like, I don't want you out there after dark. And if you are... Tell me when you're leaving, that way I know you're safe. And I'm, what I do is if I am out there, I happen to watch a horse or something, if they're colicking or anything, 
I'm either in her house or in my truck if I'm not with that horse. It's like I am physically locked in a in a vehicle where something has to break in to get to me. Right, right. Well, listen, I uh, Jessica, we called you. It was uh, I understand that <laughs> this was a last minute uh, thing getting a hold of you. So I want to thank you for taking the time to um, tell us. I wanted to hear from from the eyewitness what it was that you saw, and I think one of the key points is that this, uh, I guess you call a bailing twine, which is a hefty twine, yeah, was was untied, and it has to be done with fingers. So it's either done with humans or what, what we like to call the uh, non-homo sapien uh, hominids. <laughs> so, Jessica, thank you so much, and we're probably going to be in touch with you uh, again. I wouldn't be surprised. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you. You have a nice night. All right. You have a nice night. Thanks, Jessica. In Bigfoot history, Bluff Creek Road, October 12, 1958, Northern California. Several miles south of where the tracks were usually seen, Ray Kerr and Leslie Brazil in a pickup truck at night claimed to have seen a huge, dark, hairy, man-like figure take the road in two strides. Footprints were found at the place they indicated. This was the first publicity reported sighting of Bigfoot at Bluff Creek. But I was told that Lawrence Omeg of from Oric had actually seen him earlier outside a shack by the road where he bunked at night. He had left the job without, at the time, saying why. Welcome back from the break. I want to say something before we get started with this segment. Um, we chose the Q&A segment because a lot of people have questions. And I got a message from one person recently that said um, we were covering too much of the same ground over and over again. And we do cover, or I should say cross-cover things, but the questions come from listeners. So don't think because you've heard things numerous times that other people haven't. Or did I get that right? right the reverse of that. <laughs> but other people may not have heard things. So that's why they keep sending in these questions and we just answer the questions that were asked. Well, that's um, a good Milo, point, Will. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You got any input on that? Well, yeah, I just wanted to say that that makes sense. It's kind of like, um, you know, in college, the lecturer will talk to the person at the back of the class so everybody gets the information, everybody hears the lecture. And we do cover some information. Well, I, and I know we do. You know, some of the stuff I know we covered it before. Uh, but that's a good point. And we do get the same questions. There's a lot of common questions that are asked. And so we don't want to leave any stone unturned for any of our listeners. Yeah, I, I think part of it, too, is we get a lot of new listeners. Yes. And with new listeners, we get we may get some of the same questions. You know, and like you said, we don't want to leave any stone unturned. So if the new people listening ask those questions, we'll certainly answer them. You know, and, and if you want to hear something new, then send us new questions. 
There you go. I, I just wanted to bring that up because it was kind of sticking in the back of my mind, and I was thinking, well, you know, geez, maybe we should change this segment. We are going to be adding some new pieces in. Um, we have uh, we have a couple we're going to, working on right now, but you know, I like doing the Q and A because people enjoy it and they have great great questions and people want to hear things. It does, and you know, the other thing is that it it uh, it's audience participation I'll spit that out Tom audience <laughs> participation in this uh, topic yeah absolutely I mean you know we so love it's not having, just us yeah yeah we love having you folks involved in this with us you know it's not just Actually, us talking more. yeah it's not just us talking we like we like in fact I I want to invite listeners to come on periodically if they, anybody wants to join us for the Q&A you know by all means jump on you know with us for even five or ten minutes you know it's it's open it's an open invitation to people well having said that i guess we can dive into either questions or, or discussion part of this it's not just a q a we sometimes do discussion if we don't have a lot of questions right so milo you've been doing some research do you have anything you want to start with um i'm I've just been reading the John Green books, looking for stuff for like, you know, when it, well, like, uh, um, the tree knocking, I haven't found anything in like 80 years that said tree knocking was like the, a fad, you know, it was something they did at all. I couldn't, I can't find anything that says anything about tree knocking or, you know, wood on wood. I don't know. It's because there isn't any in the historical references. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, that just, you know, I mean, anything. I mean, okay, people going out and camping or anything. The first thing they either talk about is a, either a dark shape or, you know, a foul smell. Nothing mm-hmm. about oh, that. Or, or another thing is getting, you know, four-pound bowling ball size rocks chucked at them but yeah, nothing about ro- nothing about <laughs> you know some kind of tree knocking right. you know so that to me was interesting how that just came about you know well there's unfortunately there's a number of things in this topic that just sort of popped in out of thin air but uh we'll we'll leave diving into that we can probably do a whole show on some of that stuff one time but uh for now, we'll just sort of leave that hanging in the air and let people send us their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom, what do you got? Well, okay, so Danny wants to know if um, what kind of evidence would you possibly find if you're in a location, what physical features are better for seeing than others? He says, uh, for example, at the top of a bluff, just inside of a wood line, uh, in the middle of a metal next to a creek, uh he just wanted to know what sort of things to look for that would indicate the creatures are there. And I want to say this, I want to preface our answer by, we know that you can be, well, you and I talked about it the other night where you and Milo and you guys are at the uh, Clark ranch and you drew a picture for me and you were mm-hmm. that close to one of these things. You had no idea it was there. You know, and the thing was, the only the only thing that 
led us to believe that anything was there was the vocalizations. There wasn't any kind of markings whatsoever. Um, and Milo, of course, you were there, so I think that's the only thing we had to go on to begin with was the screams. The screams, and then, well, you know, even even back in time where you think about it, I didn't hear anything until I looked up. You yeah. know? Yeah. Well, and then Milo had a vocalization, right? Pretty much. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you talking about my vocalization? Yeah, I'm talking about your vocalization. Talking... Yes. That was, that was yeah, later was in the like, evening. It was like holy mackerel cow dung kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember distinctly as two words. <laughs> and oh boy, wasn't it. <laughs> no, oh boy, was not it. Uh, but I, I I probably would have thought maybe I grabbed Will and and, and shook him. <laughs> but you know, had had we not heard the screams, you know, that kind of preceded all that stuff, there was no indication there was anything there, you know. And then and then Paul was grabbed in the tent. So you know, once we once that happened, we saw the footprints, and we knew obviously there was <laughs> these creatures were there, and several of them. Well, as far you as, know, oh, I've, go ahead, Milo. Oh, no, that that just definitely is one of the things I'm really looking at is like um, when people see just one cross in a road, you know, it's like I would be more curious about the the peripherals, I guess I want to say. Yeah, of, where's the other ones? Yeah. And what are they doing? Exactly. You know, it's like I've said before, when, when people see one like that, you know, they're letting themselves be seen because obviously they can see and hear a car coming from a distance. And, and even when people are just out hiking, if they happen to encounter one, they know the people are there because we're noisy. And, you know, so there's a reason behind that. What it is, we don't know, but there's got to be a reason behind those sightings. You know, well, anything I would say since it's an apex predator kind of thing, I would say it's hunting, yeah, or stalking, or that you know, would be my guess. I was like, ooh, lunch. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? The sack but, lunch. Well, one of the things that was the soft burrito. Yeah, <laughs> a clear indicator that we had was, and you had to be in tune to it because not everybody picked up on it. Was you'd hear a soft twig snap here, twig snap there. Something was being stealthy, but it was paralleling us. You're talking about September? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think when I picked up on out? it. Yeah, I picked up on it fairly. Yeah, I picked up on it fairly quick because I think with the job that I had the military, you know, because you're out and you're in a situation like that, I just kind of put myself in that situation. You listen. You know, for that stealthy moving, and and we did hear that. We did, yeah. And and, and we you know, you very shine. quickly eliminate everything else, any other possibility. It's I've never been stalked by a deer. I've never been stalked. Um, you know, the black bears. You know, they're not going to stalk a group group of people. They're going to get out of there. So, no, a big cat do might do it, but that wasn't that wasn't a cat moving. That was bipedal. Yeah, it's bipedal, and there's not five cats out there, so... No. <laughs> well, 
Well, what do, what, do you guys want to do? We, I don't know if we have questions or we don't want to do a discussion or what do you guys feel like? Well, I mean, Tom has all the um, emails, right? Or whatever. Well, I do get some. I want to talk a little bit about one of our past guests. Well, this is Carol in in Missouri. I talked to her today. Right. And she said something that was, well, she said a lot of things, actually, but she said something that was pretty interesting. She had put, I'm not going to give the whole story away, but there was mm-hmm. something on her property that the creatures were interested in, and she was, um, she put it away. She locked it up. Is there something beeping? I heard something. Here's something buzzing. Yeah, you sure, that? sorry, guys. Uh-oh, it's Tom. <laughs> As long as he doesn't explode, we're yeah, okay. We're, we're going to edit this out. Um, anyway, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. I, I'm going to so, leave it in. Oh, you're going to leave it in. Okay. All right. Um, Holy crap. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so what it was is <laughs> the creatures actually attacked her house mm-hmm. when she took this food source away. And she knew it was them because they're slamming the side of the house and she hears this this kind of a garbling sound so is that i still hear a buzzing guys well no it ain't me nah it's 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 me (laughs) sorry guys well stop it (laughs) (laughs) okay so Let's let's back up a little bit on that. Sorry for the interruption, folks. But uh, so Carol had her home was attacked because she removed the food source. Now the food source was that something she was giving them, you know, or, or inadvertently? No, 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 not at all. She was actually um, it was a f- food source for something else on her property that she had been feeding, and this thing was coming in and taking it. And when she figured out what was going on. She locked the stuff away, and the creatures took exceptions. The, the way she described it was interesting. She said it was kind of a human voice, but it was slapping both sides of the house at the same time. So I'm assuming that she was in a kind of like a narrow, uh, narrow trailer house. Yes. And the slappings were way up high, much, much higher than a person could reach. Right, right. And then it was just doing this roaring kind of garbled. Uh, she said it sounded whiny, like <clears throat> the way she interpreted it was, "Where is that stuff? Where's the food?" Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hold on, just a minute. We'll back up in a moment. So let me go back a minute. I, I'm just curious about some of the stuff that that Carol had to say about this. Now, the do you remember what the food supply was that was cut off? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> I do. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I'll just say what it was. Here's what it was. Every night, uh, she was feeding hummingbirds, mm-hmm. and she had hummingbird feeders, and she'd put the fill it with nectar at nighttime, so that first thing in the morning, the hummingbirds could come in and you know get their get their mm-hmm. food. And every morning she'd go out there, and they were empty. Hummingbirds don't fly at nighttime. Right, right. And they're not going to 
drink those dry in one nighttime. Not one. No, no, no. That'd be a big hummingbird. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what she did was she was like, oh, "Okay, I see what's going on," and locked it up. <clears throat> and the response to me, it sounded like it was immediate. They uh, next next night they came in and one of them was just slapping the side of the trailer that she lives in and she said it was <clears throat> she could tell that it wasn't like somebody with a a bat or a, mm-hmm. a hard instrument but something with hands slapping the trailer up high mm-hmm. and and then it's just doing this you know that something like that. And she said it was kind of this whining voice. Um, totally freaked her out. Obviously, you outside know, of her trailer. I, yes, I've heard yeah. heard that. I don't know how many times, especially from people in the South who talk about don't start feeding them because if you stop, it's going to be really bad news. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And even even TW's friend, the guy that had his finger bit off. Um, he inadvertently cut the food supply off by not being home for a couple of months of whatever it was they were eating. And I think that's partially what prompted that attack. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a, a little tip for everybody out there. Don't be going putting apples out either in the woods or anywhere else. Nah, bad idea. Yeah, because if you stop doing it, it's it's not going to bode well for you. <laughs> right. And, and I, I laugh, but it's not a laughing matter. It really isn't. Oh, no. No, it isn't. And you had that incident where some guy went out and put he put radishes in, in exchange well, for something else. Okay. Here's what happened. This was in, in the Accult investigation. We've talked about this numerous times. And it's in my book, Haunted Valley. We had a situation going, for people who don't know, we had a situation going on for nine months in southern Washington where the, a group of four creatures were coming in primarily to one farm, a little 13-acre uh, parcel there. And we did not change the circumstances. In other words, uh, the family was giving a handful of radishes from their garden to the horse. The horse wasn't eating them, but the creatures apparently worked because they'd be gone, and they knew the horse wouldn't didn't like them. So I told them to keep doing that and not to change anything. We didn't go out in their area after dark and only in the daytime. So we observed specific rules about our activity and and allowing the creatures to be unfettered. Uh, A PhD came there, you know, who thought he was Mr. Brilliant. And what he did was he introduced a bunch of things, you know, hibachi with some meat, a bunch of turnips and things, um, you know, donuts, you know, all this crap. Okay. And he put it in the place where they, in fact, it's where, remember my talking Tom about one night we were there and sorry folks, we're jumping off there a little bit, but I, it kind of made me think of this. We, uh, there were two groups of us and I, myself and one of my other people and a couple of the, the gold Amers and their dog, the German shepherd, we were walking around one side of the house and we stayed in the confines of the yard and we walked over the dog was kind of in a I don't know what kind of a posture you'd call that the dog was very kind of low-key kind of kind of skulking carefully over towards and he stayed close to us but he was moving towards the fence line 
And then as we got close to the fence line, all of a sudden we heard this all this commotion, this brush alongside the road went crashing. Something went crashing through there, and then we could hear it running away from us. Two flat, bare feet on the blacktop. And, and it was bipedal, and it was obvious what it was. So the place where this creature was that night just coincidentally was the same place where this guy put all this junk and and i guess i just thought of that but it probably wasn't a coincidence i think they were it was part of their regular routine they were coming in there they come to that place where they could look in the house so what happened was family called me because the guy went there when he wasn't supposed to be there he was supposed to be there escorted by me and and he decided to go on his own at a different day <clears throat> other than what we arranged and just phd yeah he was just a a butthead you know and and he hit on the, the... shit uh-oh was that who was that <laughs> that, that wasn't was me, me. <laughs> yeah yeah what a bunch of finger pointers okay guys um so anyway what happened was i went out and looked you know, the family was beside themselves. They were very upset. And I look at what he put out there, and they were mad about that. And the creatures apparently had been there because um, I, one of the turnips, one of the large turnips had been bitten in half, and you could see these big blocky teeth bites in it. And they apparently threw it down and took off to the neighboring farm and tore, I mean, tore their garden up. It scared the people so bad they abandoned their home and never came back. So these unintended consequences are what happen with these creatures if you do something out of a routine it, it can really tick them off that would be the law of un unintended consequences and, and like we talked with Forrest that we had on the previous segment you know since she she's a qualified anthropologist and how she talks about these um you know, as creatures being angry and, and like a lot of primates are and have are, are very bad tempered. These creatures are also and Milo, if you in your research, that's something you'll notice, you know, that happens repeatedly is these guys have very short tempers. That's what I've been getting. It, it's kind of like they're ill tempered, they're yeah. they're anything that set them off. So if you You're right. You know, it's it's like man. So you in know, Carol's they, situation, she she removed, and it's we might think it's something simple, you know, this sweet. It, it's usually sugar water, right? That people put in these things for uh, uh, for hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. You know, so they get a little sweet little treat there, right? And if that gets taken away after they've had it for a while, they get pretty ticked off. Yeah, so they get slighted for saying, slighted. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you don't know. You can do something that that's provoking them, and unbeknownst to you, and, and not realize it. Not realize it. And the the part that gets me is that somebody else could pay the dire consequences, who's a completely innocent bystander. Right. Absolutely. Well, it isn't Carol's fault, you know. I oh, mean, no. you know. So I mean, if they're this temperamental, it sounds like they got. You know they're they're have an ulterior motive, or is this? Now this is where all this other stuff happened too, right? Yeah, I was I was urinating on the doors. I, I was briefing Milo while you were uh, taking care of stuff there, Tom. But um, yeah, I, they, it's just 
it's part of a bigger picture but these guys of course it's like anything you know it's going to be thinking of itself i mean we do it all the time we think about ourselves and um, that's what they're doing so when they they come in a place especially if they're not being challenged you know people aren't setting boundaries aren't marking their own territory and one of the big problems is if they've got let's say brushy cover to approach a home they'll utilize that if you want to keep them away from your home you need to cut that brush back at least 50 feet away they don't like going through open areas and they'll avoid that if they can which kind of goes back to the question earlier time remember uh, the gentleman who asked the question uh, about the open area and observing you know they're not going to go through an open area especially in broad daylight right uh, right you know they're, now they're he's gonna, in the um uh southern california sierras yeah they're gonna they're gonna utilize those shadows and the things that are natural camouflage uh just like any other predatory creature would they're not gonna be you know think think of how uh, a cougar might act Oh, you're, you're not right. going to see them yeah. just randomly. So a creature like this is going to behave in kind of a similar fashion. They're good. They're very good they're at very it. They're very good. And they're probably not just... even better. Yeah, yeah. probably. Because, well, they live longer than... that. You know, has anybody ever figured out what the lifespan is? Yeah, no idea. Mm. No idea. Yeah, see, that's, you know, it could be... 50 60 years or even more i i would say if you you know take a look at what you know chimps and gorillas typically how Mm -hmm. long they live in the wild it's probably somewhere along those those lines i mean it's a hard life yeah even if you're the apex predator it's still you know not a bed of roses yeah some kind of mortality rate that would but that would answer a lot of questions if we knew that then we would know what they are but we can't because we haven't mm-hmm. and also that's a good that's a a good subject to figure that one out yeah that'll be somewhere in the future yeah but uh um the this whole thing with the i i guess you want to call it the food source or cutting off the food source that's a that's a good way of trying to find out not really the aggressive part of it but you know what what catches their their interest well food's got to be high on the list well what made them come i mean a hummingbird feeder probably holds what a quart maybe a maybe well i don't know the size of hers but i mean they're they're not that big yeah, I don't know how large it is or how many she had out. Yeah, well, that okay. Yeah, the quantity of but they're probably um, she probably there are probably other things they're attracted to there. I mean, there's mm-hmm. you know there's lots of things that they'll consume. So and apparently they're not bothered by the locals a whole bunch. So or they're not afraid of the locals. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Now, how far is her trailer from like any obstructions? you know i don't know for sure yeah we don't there's two places she's living at her mom her mom's passed away uh so she's staying at her mom's house and then she's i think wanting to move back to the trailer but she's not really enthused about doing that if Mm um it's just her by herself right they've actually been (laughs) well they've been inside 
Well, yes. you remember that. Yeah, They've they been were inside in. of her trailer. They've been yeah. in the trailer. While They've she was sleeping, it woke her up. They've been in the trailer. <laughs> wow. Inside. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's similar to Forrest, uh, you know, the story that she had where, you know, here, and you think about it, that's, that's your sanctuary at nighttime. You need to be safe. You're vulnerable because you're asleep. And, you know, last thing in the world you need is one of these things in your house. Yeah, when she was talking about that, that was the first thing I thought of was uh, Carol's situation because it was it was very very similar to that, and and John yes. T.W.'s friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and then also Brenda. Remember, she talked about on the reservation right. one of these things. I, I love the story because there was just a family sitting in in the you know that a uh, double wide I think watching TV. And they walked in, and the the understanding I have is that I think it she, they were like um you know one of those wrought iron doors that you know has a screen mesh on it so you can let the you know kind of cool the place off. Mm-hmm. And opened that door, walked in, looked at everybody, saw there's people in the house, turned around and walked out. Now, Will Milo, you're sitting there watching TV, and this thing walks in and does that. What are you guys going to be thinking? I've got to change my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, I mean, and, and it kind yeah, of makes no. me, th- it kind of makes me think too, you know, the old uh, original legend of Boggy Creek, because I think there was a part where the creature was messing with the doorknob in one of those scenes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to people numerous times where similar things have happened. Well, even, even Forrest talked about it. She, she believed it had, mess with the doorknob and the dog was looking at it. And mm-hmm. what I find interesting Carol talked about this as well, how the dogs, once they get the memo of what this thing is, well this is, goes back to that dog you had at the uh, uh, Yakult uh, situation, they shut up. Yeah, the German Shepherd the family had Whenever the creatures were nearby, it was quiet. It never barked. It never did anything. Well, right. That's self-preservation right there. Yeah, I mean, you could you could visibly see the dog was frightened. Yeah. Well, here's what... It was a big German Carol, Shepherd. <laughs> yeah, well, Carol talked about that it was a German Shepherd, and it had dug almost like a little uh, swath in the dirt where it was just trying to sink down as low as it could. And you remember our friend Lee, we, mm-hmm. he's, he had a situation. Uh, when he talked to his neighbor across the street, these things were coming around the neighborhood. He was uh, up in Northern California. And I remember him telling me underneath the deck of one mm-hmm. of his neighbors, the guy had a dog. It's not a jumping shepherd, but it's very similar. I think, it's like a, a similar breed that comes from Belgium. They mm-hmm. use them for uh, police dogs, very expensive dogs. And he said, you looked under the deck, and this dog had dug a circular hole about two feet deep. He took me around and showed me all those places, and, uh, and that particular one. And it was, yeah, interesting. I mean, the houses aren't real close to each other. There's a lot of brush around there. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be really easy for something like this to move around that area in particular. You know, undetected. And I think about, you know, my wife and I were camping back, yeah, I think it was 2019. Yeah, late 2019. And we heard one of these things uh, about one or two in the morning doing a scream bark. And at first, some of the dogs in the other campgrounds are barking. And in mid-bark, and here I am. Sorry, folks. I'm telling the story I've told 100 times before. But in mid-bark, they all shut up. And that was it. There was not a peep out of those dogs. You know, it's interesting sometimes. Either either dogs will shut up or they go crazy. When we were in Yakult, you know, all those different experiences, there were so many that happened during that nine-month time period. There were times we'd hear the creatures. There was a right around, usually around 9, 10 o'clock at night when they would start screaming. And then they, you knew they were moving down into the valley. And a couple of times, it would set off every dog and coyote within miles. We'd just go crazy. Most of the times, everything would be silent. So that would, you know, that would be a good thing to be keyed off on is the 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 quieter the surrounding areas, the more you have to be aware. You, you know, know I, I mentioned this before. I, I've been, you know, I kind of like like watching the show Swamp People, right? Yeah. It's it's entertaining. In one of the episodes, they were talking about that. They were way back in some location where. They were looking for this really big alligator, and nobody had been back there for, for years, apparently, many years. And they talked about how quiet it was, and it was because a, a large predator was in there. And I thought, wow, now isn't that interesting, because the same thing happens with these creatures. All right. So here's another thing that I just thought of, and Will, you're going to think of this, too. So Carol said that the area that she's living at now, when she first moved there, there was tons of wildlife there's little rabbits mm -hmm. and squirrels and all this kind of stuff and once the creatures moved in all of that stuff was gone and at nighttime it, you know in the evening it'd be quiet and i'm just trying to think you remember when we went to the burn piles mm -hmm. and we commented how quiet it was how quiet it was and it really should have been the opposite yeah. that time of night you got all the critters making a, a racket just before they go to bed. There's none of that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it wasn't dark yet. But, uh, yeah, there should have been plenty of noise going on. Yeah. So that's that's a real issue with when you have, I guess, more than two human beings around. Because we're, we're not aware of that stuff. And it's like when I was thinking back to the Clark Ranch where when we were we were too busy talking to hear anything we or were, not yeah. to hear anything yeah we were we were yakking away all of us were and doing stuff and so that's that's an interesting point or you know that to be aware of or or think about yeah i mean you really have to kind of stop and listen and and kind of get a sense for what's happening in a place yeah <laughs> i i do like the um comment you made about the uh frogs at the clark ranch <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you could tell where these things were you could remember that milo there was there was yeah, like thousands yeah. of the damn it's it seemed like thousands of tree frogs well, right i mean it was it's wet there i yeah, mean the whole thing is just like a little bo uh, you know it's boggy or yeah, whatever you want i'm it. sure it was marshy back in there i mean 
Yeah. Because of all the cedar trees we were in, they grow around water. So we didn't see the water, but we must have been close to it. Well, I know the, the, well, the ground that we were, it was really muddy. Yeah. But we, you know, we'd, hear, we'd hear all the, those frogs would be going all around us. And then we'd hear that screaming, you know, the screaming. And then you'd hear one farther off like they were going back and forth. And then all of a sudden the frogs would just stop on one side of us. Just stop instantly. And we're like, what the hell? And then they'd stop on another side, and then they'd stop on another side. Like, you could tell something was circling the camp. And then it'd be quiet for a while, then the frogs would slowly start up, and and they'd go crazy again. And then, you know, time would go by, and then all of a sudden we'd get this same pattern. It'd stop on one side, then stop on the other, and we were being circled again. So it was it was really unnerving, the stuff that went on. Well, you remember that meadow that we were at back in September... Um, <clears throat> so I'd been there a year earlier and it wasn't frogs, but it was crickets mm-hmm. and it was the same thing. And all of a sudden the crickets would be a patch where the crickets would stop. Yeah. You knew something was there. <laughs> and I sent you that cartoon. Of oh, the yeah. one. <laughs> thank, thank goodness the crickets have finally stopped. And you see this big feet back there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely but, some subtleties to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. There's, yeah, because it's the subtle stuff that really is the key to it. You know, for well, I guess paying attention to the subtle stuff is what's going to keep you alive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you know. got you got to pay attention to your surroundings. <clears throat> And you can't ever, can't ever assume there's nothing around because you don't see or hear anything. You know they could certainly be there. And remember what Forrest said about chimps, how they how they will stand very still for long time periods, you know, and just yeah. watch, and watch people and stuff. And that is the same thing with these creatures. And I mean more and more and more. <clears throat> I think a lot of people, and I include myself in, in this way of thinking is that well they're just you know bigfoot is just something that kind of lumbers around out in the forest like what you'd see with elk or deer and they are absolutely not not that totally the opposite yep you you can lumber right next to one we've done that and didn't have a clue it was there until it (laughs) indicated it yeah right right you know we did that as teenagers we're at, you know, well, we, looking. Heck, you yeah. know, we did that. We we could walked into when like in Iraq. I mean, if you're not if you're not uh, aware of the the surrounding area, you know, you you tend to just blunder right through. Yeah, if you're not careful, I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, you need to maintain situational awareness at all times. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a problem with us humans is we get kind of caught up in our own comfort zones and don't really think about the possibilities of what's going on around us. You know, we sort of bring this little atmosphere with us, and especially, you know, for our cars and things like that. Um, you know, we think we're kind of impervious and there's just nothing out there that's going to bother us. 
and, and you mm-hmm. could be in a real you could be in a real world of hurt and not realize it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and not just your own little, like you said, your own little environment, your own little um, bubble, but you you unless you study these creatures and know what to expect from them, it's a learning curve. It is. It really is. It's it's just the way it is. You well, can be near them, and <clears throat> you know we've said this time and again. People have been near these things and didn't know it. Didn't have oh a clue. yeah, and I've done this for forty nine years now, and, and I'm constantly learning stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's well, an interesting topic. You know. Well, I'm impressed with this whole food source thing. They get ticked off when you take food away from them. They, so that's that's an interesting. Well, think know. about it. It's kind of a treat. I mean, who knows what they're eating normally, and, mm-hmm. and you get some sugar water. That's kind of a, you know, think you know think of kids. You know, they get a treat. You know, and how they react if it's taken away. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind wonder like, if she should have replaced the sugar water with uh, barley water. Who knows what would happen? <laughs> I, I don't think I want a drunk one around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that opens up all kinds of crazy ideas. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, hey, when when now, where where's the hummingbird feeder afterwards? Is it like? just kicked around or no she locked them up she secured them in i think in a shed or barn or something Mm -hmm. like that once she figured out she's like you know after a few times of having all the sugar water gone first thing in the morning she you know she connected the dots figured out what's going on and locked them up said that's it that's enough of that and that's when the thing uh, it's not really a retaliation, but it, it, it reacted in a very yeah. negative way. So, well, okay, I got a couple questions with this. Is, where was it placed? I mean, was it like on a concrete pad, on a like a carport or something? Or? Um, I think she said she had them on uh, very tall shepherd hooks. You know, those garden shepherd hooks that you stick okay. in the ground? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what she had them on. Because it'd be interesting what kind of tracks and stuff or what kind of ground disturbance was around there. Right, right, exactly. Well, we're going to have her on uh, soon, very, very soon, so we can ask her those questions. Did, she, that would be did she give any really... indication when she'd uh, record again? Um. I think in the next week or two. Oh, okay, good. Is this Carol? Yeah. This is Carol, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really a situation where she's at. And I'll just say this. She's four and a half miles from town, and law enforcement will not come out to her property. They haven't done that in a very long time. The property, excuse me, that she's on... uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how she acquired it, but the previous owner was a lady who had lived there by herself, and she vanished. It's on what? five acres, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, 
Yeah. She just vanished. Yeah. Yeah, vanished and to this day they don't know where she is. And that's wow. not that's not something that's uh completely unusual with this. I I re- interviewed um a couple of people years ago and and I have the drawings and stuff that the older gentleman, what well, was it, a gentleman and his daughter and he was um oh geez, I I want to say this was in the 40s. It was right right around World War II time period. Um there was a lady who lived by herself and everybody knew her because she had this really long gray hair, really long hair. And apparently this gentleman drove by her house one night and was out, you know, and saw this creature with a woman draped over its arm. And he saw the long hair and knew it was her and she vanished. They never saw her again. Well, that's in your um, Witness of the Unknown, Volume 1, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that that was in Oregon. I'm pretty sure that happened. It was. It was up by Tillamook, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when I hear stories like that, it's like, okay, I, I've heard these things before. It's, again, it goes back to these repeating patterns, you know, of behavior. Yeah. Well, I just got done reading that... Um, in John Green's book that uh, there's this one place out in Vancouver Island that a uh, West Coast village of Indians, uh, it, it didn't say, it didn't, get, I'll read it more later and then get into it, but it said it caught and carried away a, a girl of about 15. The, the natives alleged that two wild children resulted in that, but that was... One was found dead in a hut beyond the headwaters, and no one will even go by all that. They 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 stop doing. They won't even go in the area. We, yeah. There's some of the stories. To Tom Seward is from that area, and uh, uh-huh. we'll have, we're going to have a uh, have him on again soon, hopefully. Um, and he'll tell us some more of that stuff. He's Native American, and he's—I think he was. Wouldn't he say he was born in Vancouver Island, Tom? That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My favorite story that he has is where he, uh, one of these, there was a—he figured out a juvenile was harassing the cabin there, and and he climbed out, he snuck out the back window, and oh, that was fun. Yeah, startled it. I thought, you know. That could go two ways. Yeah, don't don't scare the Sasquatch. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because they can reciprocate. <laughs> <laughs> they can scare us more. <laughs> well, it, it made me think about, you know, things that inadvertently happened. You know, T.W.'s friend John, the one that uh, he's got, he's passed away now, but he was the one that, I don't know if you know the story, Milo, but... His friend John, when he broke in his house, yeah. Well, T.W. he he got a call from this guy, and uh-huh. uh, he was in the hospital. He says, in and he asked him what he was in there for. So he went to see him, and and the guy was just all beat the hell, right? And apparently, um, care, careful the noise, guys. Here, I can hear some background noise. Um, in in a nutshell, the story was that he. A couple of months previous, he'd been out watering by hand his tomatoes or something in his garden, and one of these creatures just happened to walk by him. And he turned around and he saw it and he squirts the thing with the hose and it takes off running. 
and I don't we don't know if that precipitated the later happening or not but or but he was gone and, and whatever food supplies he had out there for the animals he put up so there wasn't anything accessible now whether it was the food that was taken away or the squirting we don't know but he got back from his trip after a couple of months and he was taking a nap you know resting up after the trip and apparently his door wasn't locked because he wakes up feeling this presence and this creatures in his house in his bedroom standing above him and as soon as he wakes up all hell breaks loose the thing starts mauling him and throwing him around like a rag doll and at one point during this melee um he, he had his hand up near its mouth and it bit one of his fingers off and it slammed him into the wall and knocked him, and he knocked him out and that's when apparently he ended up somebody came to check on him or whatever and he ended up in the hospital so uh it doesn't take much to tick him off here's a question i have on that didn't he talk about the way it mauled him was it used the backs of its hands its knuckles yeah to... yeah well it wasn't just that there was now tw actually met <clears throat> if you remember uh legend of boggy creek and i think ford was the name of the guy they used in the, in the film but that wasn't the guy's real name so tw actually met that guy the real guy and what happened was you know, and Miley, you remember seeing Legend of Boggy Creek where mm-hmm. the family, it was the night that the thing, the hand reached through the window and then three guys right. went out to go after it and one of them got mauled. Well, the guy that got yeah. mauled was the one that TW knew. Wow. And, and there was more to it than that, apparently. Uh, we'll have to get him on to talk about it again sometime, but, you know, get it from... The TW? Yeah. But what, you know, he talked about how the guy was... He was beat up by the thing, and and it was and he was beat by the the thing used the back of its hands to to beat on him with, and and we've heard that before, and it's something that chimps do. You see, when chimps do aggressive behaviors like that, they'll use the back of their hands. So that's interesting. These things. Yeah, I was that. just trying to visualize that. That yeah. Well, I, and I suppose if you think about it, you can cause more damage because you're using your bones it's kind of like you know doubling up your hand in a fist as opposed to slapping yeah i suppose using and and if i guess if you damage the inside of your hand it would be a bigger problem for you than you know doing something to the back of your hand i, I would guess right right i don't know maybe it's just uh maybe because we're so far removed from doing something like that you know, you see it with other primates, but maybe it's something we sort of went away from, you know, a long time ago. Who knows? Maybe our ancestors did the same thing. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I could see it. You know, I mean, they're they're they they walk that way. They don't walk with their palms. They walk on with their knuckles, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, so that. That's that's I can visualize that to a point, you yeah. know, without really thinking about it, unless I go and watch a couple of ape movies or something. <laughs> a little, little food for thought, anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Did we have any more questions, Tom? I don't know if we kind of got away from those, but 
Well, um, not not specifically. Other than uh, I just, it looks like Danny is really getting into going out into the uh, Sierras. Where now we had a guy from Southern California, him and his wife. That's where. Remember they he sent in a picture of the baby. Yes. Uh, Bigfoot. Yeah. And that, I think, was in the Sierras, right? Yeah, I believe so. They were from San Diego, but I think that's where they were. I was going to look yeah, real quick. Yeah. I, you know, something we haven't done in a while is looked at um, the comments on YouTube, because sometimes people will put questions in there. Oops, darn it. Mm. Well, and this is a good point I can just kind of if you want to, if you have a question you want us to absolutely address on the show, uh, shoot us an email, questions, plural, questions at creekdevil.com, and we'll answer them. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we haven't done this for a while because sometimes we'll go in and look at the, uh, well, here's, here's one from um, episode 154. Uh, this was from Chris in the UK. He says, broke a bull's neck instantly, Jesus. The sheer power and strength of a Sasquatch. That's true. Um, and that was something that uh, Earl talked about. <clears throat> well, here's a question um, from Joe. We may have asked it already, but um, the the farm that you grew up on, and experience the activity is it still there i think you we did ask this yeah you said yeah. no that yeah it's been built up and and that's actually a uh, kind of an interesting point because one of the questions i have is if the if they if an area gets built up that has historical precedence with these creatures but if it's rural farmland do you think they're going to go away or you think they're going to Hang around. Well, it's hard telling. Sorry, I was looking at some of these more recent comments here. I wanted to answer some of these. Here's one called Happy Valley. Any Bigfoot in Lake Havasaw, Arizona area, please? Um, I would say probably because we have an ongoing situation in, let me think, it's on the, uh, right now on the Arizona, uh, New Mexico border, but. I'll have to look to see where Lake Havasaw is, but I, I would guess there probably is. Uh, now, I think I'm going that, that way here in April or May. Are, are you familiar with that area, Milo? Yeah, I'm heading that way in, in a couple of months. Is, is that in the northern part of the state or farther south? It's farther south. Okay, okay. Yeah, but Havasaw, I mean, there could be, yeah. sure. Here's yeah. another question. Um, Danny wants to know, he says, if I use my infrared night vision... Uh, will that actually repel Bigfoot? He says, my understanding is, um, and and I think my take on this would be whether it repels them or I think it probably would. They're certainly going to be aware of it. I, it's our belief, isn't it, Will, that these creatures can definitely see infrared. I'm sorry, repeat that about the infrared? Okay. So Danny has a infrared night vision, okay. and he wants to know if he uses it, is it going to repel the creatures? Probably. And I'll, Cause, yeah, because it's, it's going to use will. it's going to use an infrared light source. 
And whether it repels them or not, they're certainly going to be aware of it. They're going to see it. Right. They're going to see it. Um, do you, I don't even remember, Tom, when we did the midweek show, do you remember, was that Jim's reading? I can't remember. I believe it was, yes. Okay. Because we had Cadre uh, Luring, sorry if I mispronounce your name. Where's the usual narrator? Thanks for the episode. Um, we actually used several people to read stories. So I think Jim did that one. And here's another question. And this, and I want to answer these because um, the people who do the readings for us, um, you know, would like to get into voiceover work. So if anybody out there professionally is interested in the people who do the readings, you know, please get in contact with us and let us know which person you're interested in and we'll connect you with them. But this one, um, and again, excuse me if I mispronounce your last name, Jane Mesics. Um Who's the gentleman that read the last few stories in this episode? That was 154. I would like to find out if he reads professionally. Um, let's see. One of the guys we have is an actor, um, and I'm sure would do would do it professionally, but Jim Sower wants to do it professionally. So... I'll we'll try to I'll try to get that answer for you, Jane, and I'll I'll post it in a response here to your comment. Let's see me. One fifty four. Let's see. Do you got Scott working on that too? Yeah, our our good friend Scott Martin is also going to be uh, Scott's retired now from Costco. Yeah, but Scott um he has a degree in communication. And he's done, he's dabbled in acting for years, but now that he's retired, he'd really like to do uh, something like that for anybody listening. Again, that's a professional, and Scott's a really good guy. He's good at what he does, and uh, he's going to start doing some readings for us, too. In fact, we're always looking for people that are interested in doing readings for us that, um, you know, if you want exposure, we can't pay you, but we can certainly give you exposure, Um to potential you know professional reading so if anybody's interested in doing readings for us you know but in uh contact us well that leaves me out <laughs> i know i i stumble over myself when i'm trying to trying to read stuff too i just i i'd like to be able to but i just can't do it it's like because i'm i'm paying too much attention to what i'm looking at instead of saying it <laughs> Well, let's see. Where are we at on time, fellas? We still got a few minutes for this segment. Uh, what do you yes, guys... I do. I have a question. I'm going to shoot it your way, Will. Okay. <laughs> um, so these creatures are, we've talked about this in the past, how they will uh, use creeks not mm-hmm. only to walk in, but they will also use it to conceal their, their scat, you know, for lack of a more polite way to put it mm-hmm. um which I, i'm just going to comment real quick it's a you know boil the water if you're drinking from a creek yeah <laughs> um <clears throat> and the purpose you said is that they actually have intelligence to do that to conceal their presence from the prey in the area is that mm-hmm. correct yeah yeah 
It sounds logical to me. I think that's. I remember us, uh, Will, talking about that a long time ago, and that caught my, you know, that caught my imagination. I was like, "Wow, that is really brilliant." On yeah, their I part, I found know? it in Northern California in an area, and you know, my brother-in-law and I were there for a week and searching this area. It's a place where we at least I haven't been there for a few years in that particular spot because we've been working elsewhere, but. Uh, that area, it's, you know, if you want to find Sasquatch scat, it's a good area for it. But, um, we'd, we'd been in this place for a week in this one certain area and we'd found so many piles of, they were doing it all over on the roads and everywhere well, for about a month. And, um, so we went into this one valley where there was a Creek and there was nothing down there. And I thought, well, now that's unusual because it was everywhere else surrounding this whole area. So he went over and walked along the creek and I went over by the tree line and I'm thinking to myself as I'm walking along looking I thought well geez if you're a big predator you don't want to burn a lot of calories just randomly searching for prey right or food so what do you do how do you how do you work that out I thought oh maybe they're like a big cat maybe they maybe they conceal themselves you know ambush an ambush for and I thought well if you're pooping that much like they did everywhere else they got to be doing it if they're here too right so i went and looked inside the tree line about 20 feet in i started finding their scat everywhere so they were hiding it and also bob titmus talked about uh and i've heard this elsewhere it's not just his reference but a number of other places where people have told me uh that where they had defecated in water and that would certainly um that would certainly hide you know the presence of scat both visually and smell yeah and it sounds like uh well you know i've talked about this that place up in northern california indeed they they actually used it it sounds like for um i don't know creating an ambush or hurting their prey in a certain yeah I, I think they were i tra- was just thinking i that. think they were trying to channel the deer and everything down into that little valley Yeah, and it's a lot easier to get them there. And then, by the way, those little valleys with creeks at the bottom, are, uh, a lot of those are excellent little ambush. Oh, sure. And this one was, too, because they had uh, good visibility from the tree line over to the creek because it was a little open, natural field. And, um, it, you know, it, it just wasn't very big. And where I found it, where they were and right along the tree line was a major game trail, so... I, that was pretty easy to figure out what was going on once I found the scat. Well, fellas, we're just about out of time. Any final thoughts before we wrap this segment up? No, it was just gives me a couple good ideas or uh, avenues I can research later. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's always fun to just have these <clears throat> informal kind of uh ad hoc discussions you never know where they're going to go and yeah. uh, but i want people to if you have any there's no such thing as a bad question shoot them our way questions at creekdevil.com and we love to hear from you and next week i think what we'll do is we'll spend some time going through the comments on youtube so that we can you know answer questions directly yeah. to you folks so well that's what i've been doing and i I kind of got off a little bit, but yeah, I've been cool, but I've been 
going back from the early years, you know, the your earlier episodes and writing them down. Right. Yeah, I, we haven't done it for a while. We we tried to do it for a while, and we kind of, you know, things kind of misdirect us. So we'll we'll get back to doing that periodically, folks. All right, guys. Well, listen, stay tuned for the next segment, and we will be right back. In Bigfoot history, Bluff Creek area, October 1958. Bigfoot tracks showed up in the creek bed below the road in mid-October. On the 23rd, they were back on the road. On the 28th, tracks went down the road for two miles, and on the 30th, they plunged down the side of a hill of rough shale, digging in, also sliding. Welcome. This reading is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. This reading, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. In times past, I have read you several short stories, or a collection of short stories. Uh, Today we're going to be reading something with a little more sustainability. I'm going to read from Abominable Snowmen by Ivan T. Sanderson, from his book. And uh, if you don't know who Ivan Sanderson was... He was one of the giants in the field of research concerning these creatures. And, uh, well, let me introduce you. He was a biologist with degrees in botany and ethnology who traveled the world studying and researching hominoids and unexplained phenomenon. He may indeed have coined the word cryptozoology, and in his later years he also pursued UFO and paranormal activities. And now let me begin reading from Abominable Snowmen by Ivan T. Sanderson, Legend Come to Life. This is the story of subhumans on five continents from the early Ice Age until today. And now his dedication in his book to Bernard and Monique Huvelmans and my own Alma, and also to the following today finds a surprising host of assorted students in this odd field, but also a few professional scientists whose labors I would like first to note, at the same time thanking them for their long-standing encouragement, constructive criticism, and many forms of direct help, not only in this book, but also in my other studies of similar matters. In addition to Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, who has become the doyen of the whole business, these are most especially... Professor W.C. Osman, Hill, presently prosector of the Zoological Society of London, Professor George A. Agugino, assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Wyoming, Professor Taizo Ogawa, Department of Anatomy, University of Tokyo, Professor B.F. Porshnev of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR, Professor Quararo Gini, President of the Institut International de Sociology, Rome, Italy, and Dr. John Napier of the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine at the University of London, England. Dr. Valdemir Chernyevsky of Queen Mary's College, London, has lent me much invaluable advice. And Dr. Jorge Ibarra, Director of the National Museum of Guatemala, 
has pursued more specific details for me in this country. There is, then, another category of students not primarily engaged in scientific pursuits, but without whose labors little would be known about this subject, and without whose generous help this book could not have been written. This class is headed by Tom Slick of San Antonio, Texas, whose work is more fully acknowledged in the course of my story. Next, J.W. Burns of San Francisco, who has spent over half a lifetime in pursuit of the Sasquatches, and John Green, newspaper publisher of Agassiz, British Columbia, on whose shoulders Mr. Burns' mantle has fallen. Then there is my old school friend, W.M. Gerald Russell, and Peter Byrne, who separately and together did so much to clarify A.B. Emsmary in the Himalayan region. In the same class is my friend and associate, Kenneth C. Cal Brown. In still another category is a devoted and more or less dedicated little band of my immediate associates. Foremost is my wife, who has worked with me for over a quarter of a century, in the field, in my researches, and on all my books, doing much more than merely typing and collating roomfuls of material. Next, I would like to acknowledge two of the most remarkable young men I have had the pleasure and honor of meeting in scholarship, Rabbi Yona N. Ibn Aaron and Umberto Orsi. Yona is the recipient of degrees from the University of Yemen and a philologist of remarkable knowledge and talents accredited to the U.N., who obtained his M.A. degree upon production of the first and only Basrai Aramaic lexicon. He is, as detailed later, conversant with all the basic dialects upon which the larger number of languages of eastern Eurasia are today founded. Umberto Orsi has given me vast assistance via his specialty, bibliographical research. He is not just a literary sleuth, but a true bloodhound when it comes to rescuing rare items from the mazes of modern libraries. Without his invaluable assistance, I would not have dared to issue this work. Then there is Jonah Lynch, who somehow reproduced all my maps outside of office hours in just two weeks. Then, too, our good friend Rizel Halpins, who gave great help on the manuscript, merely out of kindness and her interest in the subject. There come next three new friends who have given their own particular technical skills to immeasurably further this work, and I don't quite know how to thank them. They are, first, Lejubica Popovich and Benjamin Rothberg, both of Philadelphia, who translated some hundred thousand words of technical material from Russian originals of hitherto unpublished publications of the Special Commission of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Coming after these two stalwarts was Ethel Waugh, who transcribed their translations from tape recordings, including place names and goodness knows how many languages. To all of these, and particularly to Ben Rothberg, upon whom the greatest onus devolved, I hereby give my sincerest thanks. Actually, these three together accomplished a work of considerable significance in anthropology, which will, I hope, soon see the light of day in complete and technical form. I would like to say, also, that I have been the recipient of splendid guidance and encouragement from the Chilton Company, the Book Division, both as a whole and from all its departments, 
they have kept a fine old publishing tradition in a bright new setting, a novel experience, and most delightful one to a latter-day writer who has seldom enjoyed such cooperation in the past. Finally, there is another army of good people, many named in the body of the story, but many more are not aimed, who have furthered the cause of ABMS Murray, generally by coming out with their own stories in face of ridicule and censure, so extreme in some times to have resulted in loss of their jobs. These people are pioneers, if not on occasion actual martyrs. In their pursuit of truth and the disproof of official mendacity, prejudice, and stupidity, I can only pray that one day their fortitude will be rewarded with full popular and scientific recognition. Ivan T. Sanderson And now, the foreword, which was written by George A. Agagina. The possible existence of the Yeti, Sasquatch, and other abominable snowman forms has long been a point of conjecture among travelers, naturalists, and scientists. While most of this evidence is circumstantial and inconclusive as yet, it provides a tantalizing mystery filled with enough interest and promise to warrant the attention of both serious students and casual readers. In this book, Ivan T. Sanderson summarizes current world evidence regarding ABSM's abominable snowmen, drawing from records and reports that are worldwide in scope and cover a broad period of time. For completeness, he discusses all prevailing views, both pro and con, ranging from highly plausible accounts to reports that border on the absurd. The result is as thorough an evaluation of all known ABSM sightings as could possibly be compiled at this time. My own approach to the ABSM problem was one of extreme skepticism. Three years ago, I dismissed all such evidence as either hoax or legend, and in hopes of a confirmation of this viewpoint, served as coordinator of laboratory research for several abominable snowman expeditions into the Himalayas. Today my skepticism is somewhat shaken, and I accept as plausible, perhaps even probable, the existence of the Yeti in the Tibetan Plateau, and view with growing interest the global sightings of similar creatures. Since my own research has been in connection with the Himalaya Yeti, I will restrict my comments to this area alone. If I accept the results of serological tests, analysis of feces for content and parasites, examination of hair, hide, and tracks, and evaluation of mummified yeti shrine items, then I must support the existence of a large unknown animal, the yeti, in the Himalayas. However, the following question once disturbed my acceptance of this conclusion. It is possible for any large animal to be sought systematically, for over a decade, without a single specimen being captured or killed? For an example bearing on this question, I return to the Tibetan Plateau. Here in western Sichuan, China, on the very edge of the Tibetan border, a large animal, the giant panda, was once hunted unsuccessfully for over 70 years before one was captured alive. This research proves that a large animal can exist, yet elude the best efforts of professional collectors to secure one. The story behind this hunt is fascinating. 
1869, Abbe Armand David, a noted French missionary, observed a strange bear-like skin in Sichuan province, located on the edge of the Tibetan plateau. This skin, much like that of a modest-sized black and white bear, was the first tangible proof that the Baisheng, white bear, of Sichuan did actually exist. Excitedly, Father David, a longtime naturalist and conservationist, traveled to this animal's reported habitat, a high mountain bamboo forest, and engaged local hunters to secure a living specimen. In twelve days they returned. The hunters had captured a living giant panda, but since the animal proved troublesome in the traveling, it was dispatched to make transportation more convenient. Although Father David was disappointed that he had failed to secure a living animal, he shipped the remains to the Paris Museum, providing the first tangible evidence that the legendary Baisheng actually existed and could be caught in the Sichuan bamboo forests. Captivated by such evidence, several scientific institutions supported field teams staffed by professional collectors. The world waited to see which of the several well-equipped expeditions to Sichuan would capture the first living specimen. This was in 1869. By 1900, the world was still waiting. Scientific interest was great, for the once mythical Baisheng had been given the scientific name Alleropoda melanolicus, and a separate family of its own. In spite of professional excitement, no new giant pandas were even seen until 1915, and no new remains were obtained until 1929, when two sons of President Roosevelt, Theodore Jr. and Kermit, shot one out of a hollow tree. By this time, most zoologists had decided the panda was extinct, so that the Roosevelt shot, while killing a giant panda, at the same time punctured several scientific egos. Assured that the giant panda was not extinct, several new expeditions were outfitted. Each contributed to the threat of extinction by shooting giant pandas, but living animals still defied capture. In 1931, a specimen was shot for the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, and in 1934, another was killed for the American Museum of Natural History. Two other specimens were killed, one by Captain Brocklehurst in 1935, and the second by Quentin Young in 1936. In 1936, Floyd T. Smith managed to get a giant panda as far as Singapore before it died of natural causes. And finally, an experienced woman collector, Ruth Harkness, succeeded where the others had failed by capturing two live specimens, the first in 1937 and the second in 1938. Both animals survived the Trans-Pacific trip and were sent to the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. Within months, the animals had captured the imagination of American youngsters, and stuffed panda bears are still considered a necessary part of college dormitory life. In retrospect, the hunt for the giant panda serves as an important lesson in regard to animal collecting. From 1969 to 1929, a period of 60 years, a dozen well-staffed and well-equipped professional zoological collecting teams unsuccessfully sought an animal the size of a small bear in a restricted area. 
During this time, not a single specimen, living or dead, was obtained. The lesson is clear. The giant panda lives in the same general area and at the same general elevation, 6,000 to 12,000 feet, as the yeti. Yet, this animal remained hidden for over 60 years. The yeti can well be a similar case. At any rate, one can no longer dismiss the yeti just because it has eluded modern search for a single decade. While admittedly no living giant panda was captured during an intensive 70-year search, several animals were killed by gunfire during the last few years, 1929 through 1936 of that period. Why don't we have similar reports of yeti killings? The truth is, we do. But for the most part, these reports come from behind the communist curtain and cannot be substantiated. Nepal is the only country in the free world with the Yeti ABSM form, and here killing a Yeti is a criminal offense with severe penalties. As a result, violators remain secret, and reports are all but impossible to trace. I have been asked if it is possible for modern science, fortified by great improvements in world transportation and communication, to miss completely authentic reports on the Yeti, if Indeed, such reports exist. It can be understood how the Baisheng could be mentioned in a 70th century A.D. Chinese manuscript, yet not be seen by any outsider until some 1,200 years later. This was a period of an isolated and mysterious Far East, the land of the dragon, Shangri-La, the Great Wall, and the unknown Oriental mind. The period from 1869 to 1929 was only relatively more progressive. Look how transportation has reduced our world since the time of the Model A Ford and the spirit of St. Louis. Look how communication has improved since the megaphone of Rudy Valley and the early talking pictures. Today our world is much smaller and nothing seems isolated anymore. Could we find a case similar to the search for the giant panda, which has occurred in more recent times? Well, such a case would be the discovery of living coelacanths in the Indian Ocean. Fossil remains of coelacanth fish forms have been found in rocks of the Devonian period some 300 million years ago and up to the end of the Cretaceous period 60 million years ago. No fossilized remains have been found in more recent deposits, and it was assumed that the coelacanth died out at this time. Fossil coelacanths were a most unique form of life, as they lived in several different aquatic environments. Their fossilized remains have been found under conditions that indicate that the living fish could be found in both salt and fresh water, including rivers, lakes, and even swamps. In addition to a diverse habitat, these fish had a worldwide distribution. It now seems indeed strange that no remains have been found of this fish in rocks of the past 60 million years, for there is no doubt that this fish never became extinct, and in fact exists in fair numbers today. In December 1938, a specimen of the long-extinct coelacanth was found in the fishnet of a British trawler working off the coast of East London in South Africa. Caught alive, the huge fish rolled steel-blue eyes and waddled about the ship deck on clumsy fins that were used like stubby legs. 
the fish bit the inquisitive captain and oozed oil from its heavy scales for three hours before dying. Identified only after decay had rendered the fleshy parts useless for scientific purposes, it proved to be a heavy disappointment for ichthyologist James Smith of Rhodes University, Grahamstown, South Africa. Fossil remains show skeletal structure, and the importance of the recent catch lay in the chance to study the unknown fleshy parts of the fish. Now, this was impossible. Professor Smith realized that if one such fish existed, others similar to it must also exist, and he began a 15-year search for a second living coelacanth. For the next decade and a half, he visited islands and coral reefs in the West Indian Ocean, asking, looking, fishing. Finally, in December 1952, a fishing trawler off the Anjun and Comoro Islands between Madagascar and the mainland of Africa caught another coelacanth. Prompt action by ichthyologist Smith allowed him to obtain and preserve this specimen in excellent shape. Then came the big shock. For 14 years, he had tracked down all leads, talked to countless fishermen without avail. Now, within the next two years, three more coelacanths were obtained, and there were indications that the native population in this part of the world had fished for and eaten these living fossils for several generations. Although not a common item in native diets, there is no doubt that, while Professor Smith dreamed of finding a second coelacanth, a dozen or more had probably been served and eaten. Here was an example where science, with all its modern improvements in communication and transportation, was unaware that what was to be one of the great discoveries of the 20th century had long been a simple item of diet for the native population. Even Professor Smith, active in the area of specifically after the coelacanth, was caught unaware. But who would think of looking in a fish market for a living fossil like a coelacanth? For a final illustration, let me turn to my own field of archaeology. Prior to 1926, a general belief was that the American Indian was post-glacial in age, and as a consequence, glacial strata were rarely examined by professional archaeologists. The few archaeologists who claimed to find cultural evidence were criticized for their ineptitude and then quickly dismissed. In 1846, a human pelvis was found with several ground sloth skeletons in Mammoth Ravine near Natchez, Mississippi. Before the century ended, positive association was demonstrated by fluorine tests. Yet not only was the discovery disregarded, but the actual bones were lost and the incident forgotten. All other finds met with a similar fate until the discovery in 1926 of the unique Folsom projectile points with the extinct glacial bison antiquus near Folsom, New Mexico. In three years' research, 19 Folsom points were found in direct association with the 23 extinct bison, and the antiquity of the Paleo-Indian was firmly established. Now the long-neglected glacial strata were examined. Archaeologists looked for additional Folsom sites wherever man, wind, or weather had scarred the surface of the land, exposing the glacial earth levels to the human eye. Within a decade of the Folsom, New Mexico discovery, Paleo-Indian sites were found from Alaska to Patagonia, 
and from coast to coast. These sites had been exposed to the eye of man for decades, but they were only found after man was convinced that Ice Age Indians actually existed. Again, it shows that man must believe before he looks, and he must look before he finds anything. Important things may well be all around us, but we will never find them unless we look for them. Perhaps one reason why we haven't more definite information on ABSMs is because not enough people have actually looked for ABSMs long enough or with enough dedication. This foreword was written by George A. Agagino. Thank you for listening to this week's broadcast, and in further weeks we will bring you more from The Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson, Legend Come to Life, and we will start reading the chapters about the story of subhumans on five continents from the early Ice Age until today. Please join us again, and thank you for listening. This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, Government Indian Agent Teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C.V. Tench, illustrated by T.T. Muneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair, who have figured in redskin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct. But the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs. They are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men would be quite beyond their powers. I am convinced, said Mr. Burns, that survivors of the Sasquatch do still inhabit the inaccessible interior of British Columbia. Only by sheer luck, however, is a white man likely to sight one of them, because, like wild animals, 
they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, and in that rocky country it is impossible to track them down. I still live in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens, I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick growth of black woolly hair. In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled, to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more the red man took to his heels. Well nigh dazed from exhaustion, he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly, he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then, with his rifle at the ready, he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently, there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse and whispered to his squine children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning... The Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. Before proceeding to relate further incidents connecting with the mysterious Sasquatch,
I ought to explain that for the past fifteen years I have occupied a government position as Indian agent stationed at the Chehalis Indian Reserve, some sixty-odd miles from Vancouver, British Columbia. My charges are also my friends, and because I have always reciprocated their regard, endeavoring to help them in every way possible, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, a place of the wild men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic period of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the red men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in the section of the country. They were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand to hand with war clubs on the mountainsides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight-foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct. The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face. He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Mora's Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators, the red men believe that individual Indians have encountered. Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. 
they were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and, knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers. The Expedition That Failed In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch detecting the approach of so many strangers would immediately go into hiding. The Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, they had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here, Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago, three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit, we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder. We peered inside the opening, but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it and began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story warned us not to venture near the cave again, as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch. But we paid no attention to them and went off to examine the cave once more. To our great disappointment and surprise, we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, and 
we were quite unable to move it. Some years later, I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk, I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle, the creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first, I was terribly scared, but his eyes looked kind, and he asked me to sit down and talk. He told me that during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears, and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain, where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish, and meat, just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark, and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. The Wild Woman There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains, said Charlie in his terse Indian dialect. They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them, nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another, but the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way. I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later, something shot out of that hole. I fired and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it, and then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward, he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I am sure if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared, and instinctively I lifted my rifle in case I had to defend myself. The wild woman ran toward the boy, bent over him, and then turned on me savagely, her eyes like balls of fire. And in the Douglas dialect she growled, "'You have hurt my friend!' I explained in the same language, "'I am part Douglas myself, that I had mistaken the boy for a bear and was very sorry for the accident. Anyway, 
I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. She made no reply, but, picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods. I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white-skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September, when Indian hop-pickers were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. It was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence, and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not, that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September while with the hop pickers there. It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adeline August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. We were walking on the railroad track when Adeline noticed someone walking along the grade coming toward us. I also saw this person, and first thought it another man walking the tracks as we were. But as he came closer we noticed that his appearance was very strange, and on coming still closer we halted in amazement and alarm. We saw that the man wore no clothing at all and was covered with hair like an animal. We were both very frightened. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. His eyes were very large and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance. Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran. I looked back as I ran and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity, as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcasts on May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending 
all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, "'Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist today. In fact,' Thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as, in response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than two thousand red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, surrounded by important dignitaries and others, absolutely ignoring the entire groups. Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. The white speaker is wrong. To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still all around here. I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman, whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia. During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. In the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then virgin wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes. That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first, Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek that turned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking. As he came within view of his campsite, he looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, 
King stopped and then slung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear and close to his eyes. A giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness, and that he was seeing things. Then it slowly dawned upon him that through the glasses he was actually getting a close-up of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars, until a few minutes later the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp. He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that the wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall, an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfall they had bagged. Suddenly, a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Some time later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian named Frank Dan, who asserts that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village, and seeing that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with the Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long. Now very old, Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, she was kidnapped by a wild giant and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What happened to Seraphine Long? Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. 
I was walking down towards home one day, many years ago, carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Qualak, Thunderbolt, I was soon to marry. Suddenly, at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified, fought, and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong, but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. Holding me easily under one arm with his other hand, he smeared tree gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying. Then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids, and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch, and much better preserved than we preserve them. A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave, there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on, I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave. Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, which is not unlike the Douglas dialect, I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats, and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands. I guess that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to take me back to my own people. At first he got very angry, as did his father and mother, but I kept on pleading with them. 
telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, because one day after I cried for a long time, the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum. With this he stuck down my eyelids as he had done before. Then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain. When we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home he put me down and gently removed the tree gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. I just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story, the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article... The few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast, unexplored interior. And like the Indians, I also believe... Copyright, J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation. Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January 1940. Volume 84, number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.